Alexander the Great was the king of uh, Macedon. The, the empire was his. It was a great ancient Greek kingdom. And during the reign of Alexander the Great, Alexander never experienced even one defeat. He spent his whole life as a leader of this Greek empire, conquering all the lands that he saw in his sights. And before his death, he actually had conquered most of the known world. It was all his. But historians tell us that near his death, he planned his funeral. And he had some rather unusual requests. And one of them was in his funeral procession, when they put him in the coffin, he said, I want my hands outside the coffin so the world will know that I take nothing with me. Alexander's point was I gained the world but could do nothing at the end. I have nothing in my hands. Cecil Rhodes was the prime minister of the British colony of South Africa, and he was quite a politician and leader, and he was an adventurer and conqueror as well, and he spent his life expanding the colony in South Africa. And on the side of making uh, fortune and diamonds, on his deathbed, he said, so little done, so much to do. Isn't that true with all men who live this life for the world? Jim Elliot said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think Jim Elliot had a lot of wisdom that these men and many people even uh, in this world today need to hear. Because in one sense, we're all fakes. We all think we can conquer and control and accumulate and possess and gain, sort of like Alexander the Great. And yet, on that final day, our hands will be outside the caskets because there's nothing that we are going to take with us. But what a sharp, impacting contrast the Lord's life is. In John 17, 4, our Lord said he contemplated that he would soon die on the cross for his church, be buried and rise again. And he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you, his father, had given him to do. And so, in other words, Jesus is saying is, on my deathbed, I didn't lose anything. Through my death, I gained everything. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin, hell, death, and the grave. And he had in one hand the title deed to this planet Earth. And all that is in it. In the other hand, he had the title deed to men's souls, those who were his. In his death, he gained it all. And we think we can gain it all, but we can't. When, we, when he lived and died, he gained it all. When we live and die, apart from Christ, we have nothing. Now, before we get to our text this morning, I, I, a lot of things that we've seen have happened. We, we know that now it's Friday morning. This is after the sun came up. Jesus was arrested the night before, and they're interrogating him and abusing him all night long. And so as morning comes, the Jews bind Jesus and carry him to Pilate, the Roman tetrarch of the region. And what a contentious relationship 
that the Jews had under the Roman leader of Pilate. You see, Pilate's job was to keep peace. And that was, that was a big thing for the Roman emperor. He wanted to know that he was in control and can rule everything and that everyone would look unto Caesar. And if the person in charge didn't keep those people content and peace, there was going to be trouble. Well, the Jews were a particularly, particularly difficult people for Pilate to deal with. The Jews knew that they couldn't put anyone to death. This all had to go through Rome. So they're bringing Jesus to Pilate, and they began to accuse him and rail against him. Pilate stops and uh, stops them and, and asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? But at that time, Jesus said he would not speak again. And so he gave no further answer. And then Pilate said, okay. You know that it's customary that I deliver one of the Jewish brethren from prison every year during the Passover as a gesture of my goodwill. So do you want Jesus back? I shall send him to you if you want him back. But the Jews said, no, we want to take Barabbas instead. And they started to cry out for Barabbas, a convicted murderer. And they said, we'll take Barabbas, but you crucify Jesus. Crucify him. And so that's where we are at this point in Mark's gospel. So if you would please turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 16 through 24. Starting with verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. And they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to be crucified led him out to crucify him then they compelled a certain man Simon a Cyrenian the father of Alexander and Rufus as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross and they brought him to the place Golgotha which is translated place of the skull then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. We are living in a time when many criticize the police, especially when the police have to use deadly force. Most people Doing the criticizing, they have no idea what the facts are. They're just sort of the armchair quarterbacks who sit in a comfortable, safe environment and criticize. But you see here in our text, we do see where law enforcement authorities did use deadly force against a person who was totally and completely innocent. My friends, this wasn't a split-second decision. This went on for hours. It was the murder of Jesus Christ. This was the greatest misuse of force and power in, his, in human history. The political world, the religious world, the, 
the military world and the law enforcement world put a target on the back of Jesus Christ that was kill him. They wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. All of this, of course, was according to God's sovereign plan. All of this is controlled by God. And Jesus Christ is letting these things happen to him so that he can save us from our sins. At any moment, he could have stopped this. And at any moment, he could have called and summoned legions of angels to attack those who were attacking him. Better yet, he could have had all those people drop dead right there and then and there. But he willingly allowed himself to go through this because this was the only way that we could be saved. After Pilate scourged Christ, he handed him over to the soldiers to be crucified. What we see here is the process of getting Christ from Pilate to the cross. And remember, this all starts on Thursday night, and Christ won't be crucified until Friday morning at 9 a.m. So all of these things were happening late Thursday into Friday morning. And so again, looking at verse 16 of the text, it says, Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. I think it's very interesting if you notice in verse 16, it starts off, Then the soldiers led him away. We need to keep in mind who Jesus is. He is God. He is the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the one who allowed each and every one of those soldiers to even be born. He sanctioned their very lives. And now he's allowing them to put their dirty, sinful, rough hands on him and lead them away. The first thing they did was they took him to, into the palace area called the Praetorium. The Praetorium comes from a Latin word which refers to the governor's headquarters. Sometimes it refers to that, and other times it refers to the military commander's headquarters. But the Praetorium was also the name of the elite soldiers that were basically the personal bodyguards of Pilate. They were considered elite. They're not taking Jesus into this area to honor him. They're taking him into this area to humiliate him. The Roman soldiers would have been the ones who scourged Christ. And a Roman scourging was horrible. The Greek word is the word phregalao, and it means to cause great suffering and great trouble using a whip, using what is called a cat o' nine tails. And typically, the victim was stripped of clothing, tied to a post with the hands bound, and the guard standing on either side of him would beat him and whip him with this this whip made out of pieces of lead and bone and, and stone at the end. Now, the Jews would only allow 39 lashes, but the Romans didn't have this limit. So when we read in verse 15 that he was scourged, this was horrific. You would think that that would have been enough for all these soldiers, but it wasn't they decided to take it to a whole different level. Now they have their chance to actually mock and abuse Jesus Christ any way they want. These were tough, rugged Roman soldiers. These were fighters. They were not the Jewish temple guards. This was a Gentile group of brutal military men who are going to do whatever they want to do to Jesus before they nail him to a cross. And if you notice also in verse 16, it says, and they called together the whole garrison. This was a large area in the house where the praetorium was, 
And so it could hold a large number of, of soldiers. And all the soldiers would try to get in on beating Jesus Christ up. A garrison or was a cohort or a one-tenth of a legion. And that could be as many as 600 soldiers. Actually, the word there used for garrison is spera. And it, it means a number less than 600. So this was actually a great number of soldiers getting in on this. The entire Roman military got together to mock and beat Jesus Christ. This was all a game, all a sadistic game. And the Roman soldiers, they were disciplined men. They were probably the most disciplined fighters in the entire world but they reveal that a man or woman whose heart is undisciplined can stoop to any and every unspeakable act. It sort of reminds me of the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was one of the masterminds of German concentration camps. And he came up with all these horrors that were poured out on the Jews and in the trial in 1961, there was a Jewish man that was called to the witness stand. He broke down and wept as he recalled the torture and the ritualistic murders of his friends and family members. But then he said something very profound. He said, that though he wept for what he had seen, he wept even more for what he could see now, is that evil can be found in the heart of anyone who gives themselves to it. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So continuing with verses 17 and 18 of our text, we read, And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew tells us in his account that they first stripped Jesus. Then they put on him, as Mark says here, they clothed him with purple. This would have been a soldier's mantle, a Roman soldier's mantle, and that was part of their required uniform. The thing is, it probably only had a purple hue to it, which means that it was probably old and tattered and faded because a Roman soldier's mantle would have been red. So they didn't put something luxurious on him. They put something old and faded out by the sun, which gave it sort of this purple hue. So purple stood for royalty, and that's the point that we need to see. They're mocking him because he claimed to be the Christ. And then in verse 17, it says, they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. What they wanted to do is make it appear like Caesar's imperial wreath that was made of gold, except this one was made of thorns and it was pressed down on the head, causing blood to flow. Here, someone was obviously cruel enough to walk around the palace and find these thorny twigs so they could make this makeshift crown of thorns. Jesus, you think you're a king? How about this? And they pressed it on his head. Interestingly, Genesis 3 17 and 18 speaks about the fact that part of the curse was to bring thorns and thistles. There it says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it 
all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. So you see what happened here. Unwittingly, Jesus, the second Adam, they don't realize this is literally bearing the curse of man on his head. And he would go to the cross fully bearing the curse sent to him by the Father. And then we see this visual abasement of the saluting. Verse 18, And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. This word uh, salute is the word aspazomai. And this was not saluting. This was mocking. This was a mocking statement. Because the normal way to salute Caesar was go before him and say, Hail, Caesar, the emperor. Here they said, Hail, King Jesus. Or, Hail, King of the Jews. I think it's interesting. John MacArthur has some, some uh, quotes on this. And, and this is what MacArthur says, and I quote, The four Gospels are very restrained in describing physical suffering. Simple words without adjectives. They're not lengthy, detailed descriptions of the features of the crucifixion or even features of scourging. Simple statements. That is because what happened to Jesus physically was not unique. There were 30,000, or according to historians, people crucified in the land of Israel around this period of time. 30,000 of them would have endured the same physical pain. And there would have been a couple of thieves on either side of him who were going through exactly the same agonies. What the Bible writers do focus on is not the physical suffering. It is the abuse of Christ that they are intended in or, or interested in. What do I mean by that? The ridicule. The word mock or mock appeared in the text I read in verse 20. This is really the unique feature of the execution of Christ. It is ridiculing with scorn and mockery and disdain. The crucifiers saw Jesus as a joke. MacArthur continues, In fact, Philo tells us that life was cruel in the part of the world in that day and that one of the things that people did in that day was taunt those who were mentally deficient. He even writes about teasing and mocking and scorn that was heaped on, quote-unquote, the village idiot. It was that kind of mentality that's behind the treatment that I just read. Jesus fits into the category, as far as the soldiers are concerned, of a village idiot, a lunatic who is a deluded, in a deluded way thinks himself to be a king and whom the Jews also try to pass off as some threat to Caesar. Jesus is a joke, and Calvary is a comedy played out, end quote. Continuing with this mocking in verse 19, it says, Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Now, reeds, we think of reeds sort of like a, maybe a cattail, but this isn't what it was. These reeds were found uh, next to the Jordan and the Dead Sea, and they were harvested actually for sticks or poles. And so these were thick, and the soldiers beat him over the head with these reeds. And Matthew twenty-seven twenty-nine actually says they put a reed in his right hand to make it look like a scepter. So now you have the full clothing of the royal mantle, the crown of thorns, a reed that operates like a scepter. In the Old Testament, it prophesies about Jesus in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5 speaks of Jesus being the ruler of his people. It speaks about the suffering of our Lord. So I invite you to turn to Micah chapter 5 and verses 2 through 5. The 
it's about six or seven uh, books from the New Testament back. And here, starting with verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are little among the thousands of Judea. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. You see this prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem? It's prophecy about Jesus and the prophecy about him being a shepherd and the shepherd being struck. You see, they're mocking his authority. They're mocking his kingship. And yet Micah says the shepherd who will be shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He shows what Jesus actually was doing. And they have no clue that they are assaulting the Son of God who would actually rule over them. But then came in this visual abasement, spitting. In verse 19 it says, And spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. You see, instead of kissing the king, they spat on Jesus, fulfilling the prophecy of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 34. But it also says it in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Then, of course, you see this kneeling. Bowing the knee, they worshiped him. Folks, this is feigned worship. In reality, as I said, they're bowing to the true king of the universe, but they're doing it unwittingly. There's a thing, a couple things to notice about this. The first is the irony in this mocking. That in the irony of the mocking, there is truth. The soldiers mean this to be mocking. They think the idea of Jesus being king is utterly ridiculous, but they don't realize that the man before them is truly the king of the Jews. Actually, he's king of the universe. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He truly is royalty. And the kind of royalty that these soldiers would have never imagined. Jesus does deserve a purple robe. He does deserve a crown. And there will be a day when these same soldiers will bow if you please turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 9. Therefore God also highly exalted him. It's amazing. And gave him the name which is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I agree with John MacArthur. He says it's not the name of Jesus Christ, it's the name of God, Lord, that he is truly God. They will bow. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of Hitler 
as much as he is Lord of those who he, whom he saved. Big difference, though. He is the Lord over those who will be condemned, and he is the Lord and Savior of those whom he has come to save. The other thing to think about in light of this scene is the tendency that we have to mock those things that we really don't understand, things that we're scared of or feel threatened by. You see, those who are hostile to the, the gospel, they quickly make fun of Jesus. How many of you have talked to people, and as you talk to them about Christ, they sit there and mock you? They do that because they're terrified of the idea that they might actually need to do what Jesus commands them, and that's to repent and believe. And so they may refashion a Jesus in some way that makes him more palatable to them. But you see, the Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus, he's a joke to them because they don't want him as their king of their life. What we want to help people see is the goodness and kindness of our Savior. He doesn't want to rule your life in order to make it miserable. He wants to rule your life in order that you might find true joy and Him, lasting joy. So it's our hope that God will work in the hearts of individuals to show them how good it is to submit to Jesus Christ as King. And we shouldn't feel threatened by that. We shouldn't feel like you're going to lose something precious by handing your life over to Jesus Christ. Folks, it's all gain. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you will get and that you will be keeping. But the question is, what's the most precious thing that you, that you have? It better be knowing Christ the Savior. So give up the idols that reign over your life. Submit to the true king. And he will give you joy forever in him. That's our message to those who mock Christ, who are afraid of him because they don't want him to be king of their lives. The third thing to meditate on is the reality of the shame that Jesus experienced is the shame that you and I should have experienced. Jesus took on the shame for us. Think about a moment of shame in your life. Some of the things that you might have done that you feel ashamed of. Think of the things that you hate and would hate if the world would know that you did it. Think of the scorn that would be heaped on you if somehow someone was able to reveal your shame to the masses. Think about what it would be if they shouted your shame from mountaintops. And then think about Christ who bore the shame for you. We all have shame because we're all sinners. We've all done wicked things, thought wicked things had wicked attitudes and intentions. And in the just courtroom of God, we deserve to reap the punishment for that wickedness. We deserve to be shamed for our treason against the true king. But Jesus took the shame for us. Think about how this should affect us in terms of the way we live our lives. And maybe there's sins from your past that you think are beyond the scope of being forgiven. Maybe things you did years ago. Maybe it's something that still plagues you and depresses you. Maybe it's something that Satan throws in your face and tries to pull you down. Where Satan says, how can you call yourself a child of God? 
you know what you've done? Don't you remember how wicked you've been? You should be ashamed of yourself. And at that point, we need to be at the foot of the cross saying, yes, I did it all. I confess to God, I did that, but I have a Savior who paid that price for me. Our identity is not in our past sins. Our identity is in Christ who had our sins laid upon him. Don't ever sit there and think that because our sins have been taken by Christ that it's a license to sin. That's not the point in this. The point is the the Holy Spirit will convict them, convict us of present sin so that we can grieve over it and then repent of it. Always remember the repentance. We should grieve over it. We should never get to the point where we just sit there and go, well, okay, it was covered. No, we should think of what he paid on the cross Jesus has taken care of all of that who have been saved through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And I know I had you turn to this last week, but I'm going to have you turn again. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This is so important to understand. This is so important because we do have an adversary that is roaring, prowling like a lion seeking to devour. And our only hope is to rest upon salvation in him. Here, starting in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2, it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Folks, we are dead. We are, when we are born into this world, we have a dead spirit. Not sick, dead. God told Adam, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And he did spiritually, and he also started the, the road toward death physically. But on that day, he died spiritually. Do you know what that means? That means God is spirit, and he had spirit, and now that communion is broke. Now he didn't have the ability to go directly. Because he needed a mediator, the man Christ Jesus, to bridge that gap. But here it says, you being dead in trespasses and uncircumcised, uh, uncircumcision of the flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus took our shame on the cross and he triumphs over all of his enemies so that they are the ones who are put to open shame. Jesus endured the shame of the cross, and he was even able to do it joyfully. He did it joyfully because he knew what he was redeeming. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I hope that adds another insight into the suffering of Christ. You see, as weak as Jesus was physically, as difficult as this was emotionally, knowing that his disciples had left him and that at one point his father would forsake him, Jesus still found joy in his heart because he knew what all of this was going to bring about. 
the shame he experienced wasn't going to last forever, but the rewards of his suffering will last forever. And so he could dis- despise so he could despise the shame. He could look down on it and rise above it. He could look past it to the glories of what all this would mean in eternity. And so continuing with verse 20 of our text, it says, And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. You see, it says there, And when they had mocked him, Now, you have to go back to the other gospel accounts, and especially John 19, for example, that before they stripped him of his royal fake clothing and the crowns of thorn uh, and the mantle and the reed, John 19 tells us that they paraded him back to Pilate, back to the crowds who earlier cried out, crucify him. And Pilate, who originally didn't really want to crucify Jesus, eventually did. And John 19.5 says, Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. A public mockery. A crown of thorns. A tattered mantle. A reed in his hand. Swollen face, bloodied up. Jesus was for all to see a visible abasement and visible humiliation. Isaiah 53, 3 is fulfilled in this. It says he was despised and rejected by men as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteem him not. Such a mocking was also the fulfillment of Psalm 22.6 where he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That was Christ. In all of that abasement and all of that humiliation, Verse 20 says they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. Two times in verse 16 through 20, it's noted that they, the soldiers led him away. It begins and ends with this language of leading. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In verse 20, it even says they led him out, indicating the fact that they led him out of the city And that is really a fulfillment of Numbers chapter 15 and Leviticus chapter 16. A number of Old Testament passages that say anyone who is executed as a Jew, and for that matter even a Roman, must be executed outside the camp, outside the city limits. And so even in his humiliation, in his abasement, voluntary as it was by Jesus, he showed that he is God He was showing that he came to fulfill the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And not just barely, he fulfilled them perfectly to a T. And yet these soldiers are clueless. This is the king of the universe. The king that they mocked as the king of the Jews. That word mocked in the Greek is empaizo. And it means to play with, to trifle with. Folks, I wonder if there are people in the visible church. And when I say visible church, you see five churches in this town even. Are they really churches? Because I think some of them play with and trifle with the word of God and trifle with God himself. 
they sort of act like God is their cosmic genie, someone that you can fool or, or trick into something. I worry about those people who think that they're going to tell God how, how it should be. So many people, when they pray, they pray as if they're telling God, God, I got a plan. Here's how you have to fulfill that plan. It's dangerous, folks. We should pray our heart and say the same thing that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. Don't think that you can tell God, here's, I got it all figured out and I know better than you. But when you look at it, here are the, Ro Ro the Roman soldiers. Game was over. They had their fun. So they decide to dress him up, lead him to his crucifixion. Romans were actually known for leading person naked to crucifixion. One commentator brought out it may have been a concession the soldiers made to the Jews that they put his clothes back on him to lead him out. The Romans loved to crucify people. And when they did it, they put them near major roads so all the people could see. They did this so that as people would pass, they would see this horrible sight and, and think to themselves, I don't want to do what that person did. And so in verse 21, it says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. The verse starts with, and they. That would have been the Roman soldiers. Probably at the command of the centurion who was overseeing this, it says it compelled a passerby, uh, Simon the Cyrenian. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You need to understand that crucifixion was sort of like a modern-day funeral procession. Drew large crowds, and apparently this, this uh, man, Simon of Cyrene, just passing by, and the Romans said, hey, you're going to carry the cross for Christ. That word compelled, you know, normally when we hear that, it's something in us that the word there is the Greek word engaruo, and it actually means pressed into service. It doesn't mean something that you were going, oh, you know what, you know, I, hey, do you want to carry Jesus' cross? No. You, Simon, carry his cross. I know you don't want to be, get involved, but guess what? You are. Carry the cross for this man. And that would have probably been the crossbeam. Uh, criminals re were required to carry the crossbeam, and John tells us that he bore his cross for a while, but then became too weak, so Simon uh, was, was there to carry it for him. And this happened many times. Those who were crucified, they couldn't carry their cross all the way. Jesus had been beaten so severely that he would have been very, very weak from the physical trauma and blood loss. Actually, Isaiah 52, 14 says his appearance was marred more than any man. The violent Roman flogging, his sentencing to death, all of the verbal and physical humiliation. You have to realize this happened all within 15 hours. And so he bore his cross until he could bear it no more. We have to remember, he is truly God, but he is also truly man. We should never doubt his true humanity 
so much so that he couldn't even carry his cross. Bible commentator John Chrysostom, uh, he's called the golden mouth of all preachers in the early church. He sees that Jesus carrying his cross until he was too weak to continue finds its fulfillment in the Old Testament parallel seen in Isaac, and who is Abraham's son. He was bearing the wood for his own sacrifice when they went up to Mount Moriah. So Jesus is the Isaac, all bruised and bloodied, bearing his own wood as a sacrifice. But you see what the soldiers meant for evil in forcing Simon the uh, Cyrene to carry the cross God turned out for good for this man. Jesus' body, he didn't even look human. And he was carrying this 100-pound cross. And then Simon was told to carry it. Says Simon was from uh, North Africa. Actually, the place he was from is known now as uh, Tripoli. We don't know a whole lot about Simon, but we do know that he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And the other thing that we do know, Rufus ended up being a key man in the Church of Rome. Also, his mother, the mother of Rufus, which would have been Simon's wife, had rendered some motherly service to Paul, so much so that in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, the apostle Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. And so, again, looking at verse 22, it says they brought him to the place called Golgotha, uh, which is translated place of the skull. The name Golgotha is Aramaic. Uh, the Greek transliteration is Golgotha, which means skull. But the Greek word that's used there is cranion. It's actually where we get our English word cranium. And the Latin word for uh, cranion is calvaria. It's where we get our English word for calvary. The actual location that's been debated, there's a place known to have skull-like uh, protrusion from the rock. It's known as Gordon's Calvary. It's located to the north of the city just outside. And, but others say that it's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, and that's because of A.D. 326, that church known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built over where it was said Jesus was crucified. Most people believe that that's, that's probably true. But here's the thing. That's not the important thing. Knowing where the site is, it's a symbolism. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. That's the important part of this. This all fulfilled Old Testament scripture that said they were executed outside of city limits. And I think it's interesting, we find tucked away in the book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 16, 18, it says this, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and their sin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up in, with fire. Jesus was carried outside the camp, outside to Golgotha. And then verse 23 says, Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And there again, it says, they, and, and that actually refers to women, and they offered him that. These were pious women in Jerusalem who sometimes provided sort of a primitive narcotic to dull the pain it was mixed with wine and myrrh. But Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. 
Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. You see, Jesus didn't take it because he didn't want to forget his poverty. He didn't want to forget his misery. He, there were several reasons. He wanted to have a clear head. He didn't want to be under the influence of anything. And secondly, he told his disciples he wasn't going to drink of the fruit of the vine. Remember in the upper room, he says, I won't drink of that until the kingdom of God. And perhaps the third thing is most important. He drank drank the, the wine mixed with myrrh because he wanted to ensure, and I hope you listen to this, that he absorbed the full brunt of God's wrath. He wouldn't drink the cup mixed with myrrh. Jesus would drink a sour cup that he saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup of God's wrath, and he would drink it to the dregs. He wanted to make sure he was of clear mind that he took upon himself fully the wrath of God on our behalf. And so finally in verse 24, It says, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Beginning with with this verse, Mark says it so simply. And when they crucified him. It's a matter of fact, it's succinct. And Mark's original readers were Gentiles. They were probably Romans. And Romans didn't want to talk about crucifixion. It actually made their stomachs turn. So actually, maybe out of respect, he doesn't go into the the gory details. But folks, you weren't Romans. So you need to learn about a little bit about these, uh, not to be mesmerized by the gory details, but to understand the reality of it, the spiritual anguish that just far exceeded his physical anguish. And actually, we'll see that next week, God willing. But understand that in one sense, Jesus' death wasn't unique. As I said, thousands of people were crucified. What it resulted in was unique because it brought salvation of God to the world. This crucifixion, that was an, uh, originated with the Persians and passed on to the, uh, to the Carthaginians and then on to the Romans. This wasn't a Roman thing to start out. This was a punishment and it was reserved for criminals and slaves, not for Roman citizens. It was for, reserved for the worst of, of criminals in all of these different uh, uh, um, regions. They all saw this as the worst and ugliest of all deaths. Actually, Cyril said it was the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Josephus says it was the most painful of all deaths. And an anonymous anonymous person said that the one who was crucified, it's likely they died a thousand deaths. In fact, that, that Latin word for cross is the word crux. It's where we get the English word excruciating. The cross and crucifixion was excruciating, the worst imaginable death. But notice in verse 24, it says, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is basically a lottery for his clothing. John 19 indicates that there were four soldiers in charge under the centurion, and they all probably cast lots to see what they would get. But they did this in fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus went from the glories of heaven, fellowship, with the Holy Spirit and the Father 
to this humble earthly life, to receive the scorn of man, to the cross, which was the lowest of all deaths. I like the way the Westminster Confession puts it. Christ's humiliation consists in his being born and that in a lowly condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross. Galatians 3.13 and Deuteronomy 31.23 say, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is a cross, to bear the cross. Even the Romans believed that if someone was sentenced to death by crucifixion, that they were indeed cursed. The Jews believed that they were cursed. The whole believing, the whole world believed they were cursed. But when you are born again in Christ, when you have been regenerate, he bore the cross and the curse for you. Do you live your life understanding and realizing that? Do you bear the cross of Christ? Whosoever come after me, let him uh, deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Do you do those things? It's not going to make you popular. It's not going to make you popular at work, at school, your neighborhood. You may be mocked because you're different. The moment that you picked up that cross, it'll be the same as when he picked up his cross he was made fun of. He was ridiculed. He was harassed. He was spit upon. But guess what? He says that'll happen with you as well. If you'd please turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. John chapter 15, starting with verse 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Folks, if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, should you not expect that the world would treat you the same that they treated Christ? And yet, sometimes we walk around and we act like we should be put on a pedestal. We, we act like we have power. We act like we have authority. They didn't do it for Christ. They're not going to do it for you. Whatever shame plagues you, whatever doubts or despair pierce your heart, there is one who got victory over that, who died for us. He took our shame. He conquered the cross. He rose again, defeated death. So we don't have to fear death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because of what Christ did, we don't fear death, but instead we look forward to heaven. If you are repenting of your sin and clinging to Christ, understand your sin has been atoned for and your sin will not be held against you. You are righteous in Christ and therefore God, therefore God will receive you into his presence where you will spend eternity of eternities praising in him and delighting in him. I want to finish with the words of Isaiah 50. 
verses 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are profoundly gripped by this portion of Scripture. It first of all touches our minds, but then it grips our heart. We thank you for the beauty of this text, the truthfulness of it, the integrity of it, the wonder of it. But beyond that is the wonder of the person of Christ. His majesty shines even in the midst of these horrors. And all of this he's doing for us, bearing in his own body our sin, that which you plan from eternity past, the redemption of sinners. He died that this might be accomplished. And we thank you that he was willing to give his life for us. Lord Jesus, may we be willing to give our lives for you, serve you in spirit and truth. Proclaim your name to those who also need to hear about salvation through your blood. We pray this in Christ's most glorious and precious name. Amen.